Today I have an opportunity to preach on a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And uh, I count it a privilege to be able to share specifically about evangelism and the importance of evangelism um, as an individual Christian and as a church. And uh, before I jump into there, I have to acknowledge that I have, Jill and I have had a blast with the students here. It's been a year, and the stu- where, where are the students of the student ministry, our junior high and high school kids? Where are you guys? Oh, look at this, the faithful over here. All right, wonderful. I think a few were committed to go come sit in the front. Oh, we have more over here. But you're sitting with your parents, though. It's a little different, but that's really good. Uh, I was hoping they'd all be together, you know, and like, yeah, but I have more work to do, I guess. Uh, anyways, it's been a, a wonderful joy to minister to students here at Tri-City. And one of the reasons why, as a 50-year-old, I keep going back to serving in student ministries is because as a person who's passionate about sharing the gospel, I know with student ministries there's always going to be students in there that don't know Jesus. Whether they've been raised in the church and they haven't given their lives to Christ yet or they bring their friends, there's always going to be those that don't know Jesus. And so I love student ministries for that reason. And I guess I'm a big kid as well. I'm trying to stay young. So I enjoy that. So one of the greatest joys in the Christian life is to be used by God to win a lost sinner to Jesus Christ. I believe it might be the greatest joy in this life that a believer can partake in and enjoy when a lost sinner, or God uses you to minister to a lost sinner and see them come to Jesus Christ. I have a pop quiz for you right now. We are, we are having in-person learning, so let's take advantage of that. Many of you missed school. Many of you have been on Zoom, but we're all together, so I'm going to throw a pop quiz at you, and there's just going to be one question with one basic answer. And here's the question. Is the preaching of the gospel and the saving of souls the ultimate purpose of the church? Is the preaching of the gospel and the saving of lost souls the ultimate purpose of the church? Some of you might be saying, well, I know an important purpose is fellowship, especially coming out of COVID. It's extremely important that we're all together. So fellowship is huge. Uh, Knowing the word and preaching the word has got to be one of the chief priorities of the church. Um, Praise and worship is a major importance within the church. But is it the ultimate or chief purpose? Now, some of you are saying, well, Stead, if you go back and study various church fathers, they would all say, the glory of God is the chief purpose of the church. And I would say, yes. But how do we most glorify God as a church and as Christians? Or let me put it this way. Is God most glorified when a sinner turns from sin to receive Christ? And should not evangelism and sharing Jesus be our main purpose every day of why we are still here on this earth after we get saved? I want to read an article from one theologian who says this. The supreme way God chose to glorify himself in the realm of humanity was through the redemption of sinful men. Since the fall, God has been drawing is now drawing, 
And until the final judgment will continue to draw sinful men back to himself, all for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. When sinners are saved, God is glorified because their salvation cost him the death of his own son. The immeasurable price, his magnanimous grace, which he was willing to pay. And it is through participation in that redemptive plan that believers themselves most glorify God. Through Christ, God was, quote, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, Paul declares, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, which is our text for today. He says this as well. If God's primary purpose for believers was loving fellowship, then he would take us immediately to heaven, where spiritual fellowship is perfect, unhindered by sin and disharmony or loneliness. If his primary purpose was learning his word, he would have taken us immediately to heaven, the only place where we can know his word perfectly. And if his primary purpose for us was to give him praise, he would take us to heaven where praise would be perfect and unending. There is only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on earth, and that is to reach the lost. Just as Christ's only reason for coming to earth was to seek and save the lost. Luke 19.10 As the Father has sent me, he declared, I also send you. Now I agree with this article. I do believe the chief way that we glorify God is by being a church that is concerned about the saving and winning of lost souls to Jesus Christ. It is our main purpose. And I want to kind of develop this from a very important text in the Bible. It's 2 Corinthians, if you guys could turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to spend some time in verses 18 through 20, and then we'll touch on a few more. Let me read that text to you now. This is God's word. Verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Let's start in verse 18. He says, now all these things are from God. He's pointing back to chapter 5 and even earlier parts of the book. But the beginning of chapter 5, it's, it talks about how our earthly tent is giving way and we have a building from God which is coming. So he's looking to the future saying, you know what? Your earthly body is going to die off and we have a future with a new body and the new heavens and new earth. And right after that, he also mentions that we will all stand before Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. What's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, that's a judgment for Christians unto rewards. So Jesus is actually going to judge us as believers and give us rewards based on what we do in this body. So the context of this whole text that we're going to tackle is actually rewards. And he says we have as this ambition uh, to be pleasing to God. 
He also says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And then we get to that famous verse, verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Why did he make us a new creature? Why did he make us his child? Why did he transform us and, and make us new? It's so that we could be his representatives and take his precious gospel to the lost. Now all these things, I just mentioned that, are from God who reconciled us to himself. We have to understand this word now, reconciliation. Everybody needs to walk out of this building and know exactly what it means. Let me define it simply. It's when enemies become friends. Okay? Reconciliation is when enemies become friends. Now, I'm a USC football fan. Randy Lockhart is a UCLA football fan. We are friends. But there's one day every year where we become enemies. Okay? We are at odds that day. We may not even communicate with each other at all. But when SC beats UCLA right after, I have great joy and he humbles himself and we reconcile and we become friends for the rest of the year. Okay? Uh, and rarely when UCLA beats USC, then I humble myself and, and you know, the game. Okay? Maybe in our families, we have children who are at odds and have enmity between them and their parents. They're always fighting with their parents. Maybe we have parents in this room who are always fighting with their children. Maybe we have siblings that fight with each other all the time. And the home is like a war zone. And what def uh, desperately needs to happen is there needs to be reconciliation between people because they are at odds. There's enmity. I have an illustration that I would like to share with you about a friend of mine. We actually served in ministry together. He's the college pastor up at FBC. His name is Sean Farrell. And we ran the student ministries up there together. And we were good friends until Jill and I, on our 15-year anniversary, we went to Hawaii. And we didn't have a lot of money, and we still really don't have a lot of money. I don't even know why I'm mentioning that. But, oh, I know why, because we flew the red eye back. We were trying to save as much money as we could coming back from our, our anniversary getaway. And we took the red eye, and we're coming from Hawaii. And all of a sudden, the plane is doing this. Okay, it's bouncing up and down. And the pilot gets on there, and he says... All right, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to strap in. We're going to have some turbulence for the next hour. I'm like, hour? It seems like an eternity when you're in the middle of it. And then he says, stewardesses, please strap in. Okay, when that happens, you know it's going to be bad. So we are just really having a, just a terrible time. Jill and I are sweating. We've got our little, the little bags ready to go, you know. And it's terrible if you don't have the bag and you just use the little pouch on the chair. No, that's not good. Anyways, so I, we're on this red eye all night long. My nerves are shot. I get home. I'm dead tired. I turn, come around the corner and I see my house. And it had been yarned. Not teepeed, yarned. That is, they took, I don't know, 50, 60, 100 rolls of yarn, and they went from my trees to my lights to the street light. They brought my basketball hoop up. They, they yarned that, and it was like this web of yarn everywhere. And they did my, uh, my landscape lighting on my driveway, and I, in a moment, I just had that moment where I lost my temper. I was, just, I was really mad, and I knew it was Sean. But I was just I was so mad. I almost took my car and just 
rammed it right up the driveway, which would have captured all the yarn and then ripped my landscape lights off, you know. I didn't do that. So I'm very upset, and I go into my backyard trying to get through all the yarn, and they had completely yarned my separate three-car garage as well, inside. Sean got me. Now we are enemies. So I spent a lot of time meditating on how I could get back at Sean. And I did the ultimate D group, discipleship group activity. I grabbed my high school boys and I said, boys, come with me. Let me teach you something. And I had a key to Sean's house. They were gone for a week. And we took every piece of furniture on their bottom story. And starting with the middle of their king-size bed, we started stacking furniture to the ceiling. We took all the furniture in their whole house and stuffed it into their master bedroom. Okay? To the degree that you could barely get the door. Like, I'm thin. I could, like, slip through the door to get out of their bedroom. And, boy, did they love what I did for them. And now we have a deeper, more intense war. Okay? We have major enmity between us now. So Sean, he doesn't give in. He decides to come up with a new plan to counter my plan. Uh, my plan was Operation Storage Room. His was, I think, Operation Christmas Tree or something like that because it was January the 6th after Christmas. I was getting ready to go golfing. I got up early, had my golf gear, and I go to open the door to walk out the front yard, and all of a sudden, there is Sherwood Forest on my front yard. Sean, with a bunch of other men in the church, probably students as well that own trucks, went and gathered all the dead Christmas trees that had been set out, and then he remounted them and stood them up on my property to where I couldn't see a thing. Oh, it was, and then when I saw Sean, I basically bent the knee right there. I said, you know what? I'm not going to continue this. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to humble myself. And I'm going to go ahead and forgive you. You need to forgive me. And we are going to stop this war. And we're going to become friends. And so Sean and I reconciled. Now, it's a funny story. Okay? It's a true story. But it does illustrate a little bit what reconciliation is. Two enemies to become friends. Now, with God, in verse 19 and in verse 18... Reconciliation between God and man is very different. And here's why. It's uniquely different because reconciliation that takes place between God and man is, needs to happen by God to us because we are the only offending party. We are the ones that are guilty and not God. God has not been hostile towards us. We have been hostile towards him. But it's his love that flows towards us that is pushing, if you will, and promoting this, this desire for him to be reconciled with sinners. Don't ever think that God needs to get right with you. No, you and I need to get right with God. We need to be reconciled to him. Why? Because we broke his laws. And when we broke his laws, we became enemies of God, it says in Romans chapter 5. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet it was his great love in which God initiated reconciliation with us. God wasn't hostile towards us. We have been hostile towards him, yet he still loves us. One theologian wrote this, God took the initiative and completed the work of reconciliation before we, as sinners, began to respond to God's gracious invitation to be reconciled to him. In brief, God restored the relationship between himself and us 
so that his new creation for us could be fully realized. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Let me just drive this reconciliation point home with you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. We're going to jump into the middle of a great text on the deity of Christ, that he is the creator of the universe, and he holds all things together. And then we read that he is God because all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace. Why peace? Well, the Bible says we are enemies of God, but it's him who made peace. How did he do it? Through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, verse 21, and though you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you, not us to him, but he reconciled us in his fleshly body through death in order to present us before him wholly blameless and beyond reproach. Jesus made reconciliation with us. God made reconciliation with us. He's the one that sought after us. Jesus did not die in order to enable God to love sinners. But he died because God loved sinners. And because God loved you and me before we were saved, God pursued us in his love and desired for us to be right with him and to be reconciled. Reconciliation is the sinner being made right with God. Now you can see this all throughout history. Where did the first pursuit of reconciliation start? It started in the garden, back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned against God. They immediately realized they were naked. Uh, They were, at that point, cut off relationally with God. Their sin was now a barrier between them and their God. And they went and hid. And they even put fig leaves on. And they were hiding. They were scared to death. And who comes after them? God, the creator, comes down into the garden and he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And all down through the ages, God has been calling out to sinful man, Adam, Adam, come to me. Not only did it start in the garden, but then he chose the nation of Israel to be a light to the nations. And he used Israel to be a reconciliation piece. Then he gives the law and the prophets which were used for reconciliation. And then he sends ultimately, which the law and the prophets pointed to, he sends Christ. And then he institutes the church. And then he saves you and me. And he has Tri-City Bible existing to, to produce reconciliation between sinners and God. That's why we exist. How did he reconcile us? Verse 18 Keep on with this. Verse 18 says that he reconciled us to himself through Christ. Jesus Christ came and lived perfectly for 33 years, never sinned. He kept the law that you should have kept, but you didn't keep it because you're sinful. And then he went to the cross and he died on the cross where his father poured out his wrath and anger for your sin and for my sin. And he took our punishment that we should have taken, but he did it for us. He became a substitute. 
And his death is what removes the sin which alienates you and me from God. His death completely removes and totally removes the wall of sin. I like this quote here. On him almighty vengeance fell that would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. Jesus did that on the cross for you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you are lost in your sins, but he is crying out to you to be saved. And my question is, is everybody in this room been reconciled to God? Are you right with the Lord right now? Are your sins paid for? Are they covered? Have they been forgiven? You do not want to be in this room separated from God and then ultimately die and then have to go before him in judgment and have your sins be held against you. Which verse 19 says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Not counting their sins. This throws me back to Psalm 130, verse 3. O Lord, if you mark my iniquities, who could stand? Psalm 1, the wicked will not stand in the presence of God. They will be brought low. But Jesus, when he came, he did not count our sins against us. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And he's here offering salvation and repentance to you even now that you would repent and believe. Are you right with the Lord? That's Jesus' purpose. Now, what is our purpose? Our purpose is the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world, not counting their sins against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is an agency that God has so ordained for us to fulfill. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Well, it's simply this. It's the sharing of the gospel. Okay? It's an act or action, because that word ministry means service. The ministry of reconciliation is, can be done in word and in deed. It's simply the proclamation of the gospel, which can be done in such a way that it's others-oriented, it's compassionate, there's a deep concern for the cost, or for, for the lost, and it will cost you greatly, uh, to cost the Lord. It's equal to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, and he says, I, Go and make all nations, make disciples of all nations. So the ministry of reconciliation is the making of disciples in all nations, which is what John's doing in Paraguay. It's what we should be doing every day. It's God's call to lost men to be saved. Now notice it says here that God has given you and me this responsibility. It's been given to every believer. God has sovereignly ordained that the gospel go forth via human agency through you and me. He could have easily ordained angels to come with the gospel but he didn't. He chose to share his precious gospel, to share his precious son through you and me. Romans 10, 13 and 15 says this, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. 
The way that people get saved is by hearing the gospel. The way that they hear the gospel is by you and me bringing it to them. So the ministry of reconciliation is the sharing of the gospel. A second thought under this first point. The ministry is a stewardship. Okay, It's a stewardship. Look what he says here in verse 19, the latter part. And he is committed to us the word of reconciliation. Another translation would be entrusted. God, in a sense, has handed the ministry and the gospel over to us to bring to the lost. Now, it's God who saves, but he uses us to share the good news. I'll illustrate it this way. This idea of responsibility and commitment and entrusting. So, I remember almost 30 years ago standing on a stage like this, and behind me is Dr. MacArthur. There's a large crowd, and I hear music playing, and here comes this beautiful 19-year-old in a wedding dress. And she's coming down the aisle with her father, okay? She's smiling, and he's in tears, okay? And I couldn't tell, because my eyes were bad, if those were tears of rage or what, but he's coming down with her. And you have that famous moment where the officiator says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And it seemed like an eternity, the pause. And at this point, George is weeping hilariously, uh, I'm not laughing at him, but it's just, it's out of, no, he wasn't. But he says, and here's the famous line, her mother and I do. And in that moment, he takes Jill's hand and he hands her to me. What just took place there? 19 years of my father-in-law loving, caring, nurturing, disciplining, providing for, protecting, raising his precious daughter. And in a second, he takes all that responsibility and he puts it on me. And now for 30 years, I've been trying to do my best. I really have. She's smiling in the front. So that's, hopefully that's good. Uh, <laughs> what took place? All that responsibility was handed, was entrusted. It was committed to me. And that, that really is the idea of this stewardship idea of the ministry of reconciliation. That the most precious program, if you will. I don't even like that term, but God's institution of the gospel and sending his son and how important that is. It's the most preeminent thing in the universe. And God is so ordained that it go, the message go through us. And there's a responsibility there. There's such an, an importance, a weight to that. I want to be honoring to the Lord. I want to be doing what he's called me to do. That's why he's made me a new creature. I want to be sharing the gospel. How about you? How about you? Is that your heart? Do you understand the importance of this? Do you feel the weight? And the weight isn't your responsibility to convert souls. You're, the weight is just getting the message out. That's the weight. And he expounds on this. Second point is, we are God's chosen messengers. Look what it says in verse 20. Okay, we're God's chosen messengers. By the way, some of you are wondering, what is the word of reconciliation? It's the gospel. It's verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the word of reconciliation. It's the gospel. And now God calls us to be ambassadors, his chosen ones. Okay, now this is tied back to verse 17. The idea that we have been created 
to do something. And it, it is to be lights and, and witnesses for Christ, to be ambassadors. What does it mean to be an ambassador? Well, the word ambassador means this. It means sent out one. Okay, sent out one. You and I have been chosen by a king, very much like ambassadors would be chosen by the king. The ambassador would know the king well, and he would be sent out by the king. He represents the king. He goes on the king's behalf. He speaks in such a way that when people hear the ambassador, they know that that is the king's message. They know intuitively, we better listen to the, the ambassador because he is representing the mouth of the king. So you and I, we go in the king's stead. That's pretty good. You guys like that? That's my last name. Sorry. We go as his representatives. We represent him. When we speak the gospel, we speak it as if God were speaking to that lost sinner through us. That's the idea. And ambassadors have a unique relationship to the people that they're sent to. The president would not send an American of Jewish descent to be an ambassador to Iran. Okay, he just would not do that. He would send an American with Iranian background, who was an Iranian, to Iran. Why? Because they would naturally, effectively be a bridge to communicate whatever the king wanted or whatever the president wanted. And the point is simply this. God has designed you and I to uniquely minister to the very people that we come in contact with, with our family members, with our neighbors, our colleagues at work. God has so ordained that you be the messenger to those people that you're in contact with. It's really his design. That's why when you do share your faith, you call it a divine appointment because you knew that the Lord had orchestrated this. And by the grace of God, I was faithful to share you need to view your co-workers, your neighbors, your family members as a mission field for Jesus Christ. That is our number one purpose of why we're still here. To share the gospel and be God's representatives. So the ministry of reconciliation is basically sharing the gospel. Who does it? You and I, we've been called as ambassadors to carry his message. How should we do it, therefore? Well, look what it says. Therefore, as, as ambassadors of Christ, as though how? As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see those words? As though God were entreating through us, we beg on his behalf. Those are important words. Those are passionate words. Those are compassionate words. God has such a compassionate heart to wicked sinners and that needs to be conveyed in how we share our faith. There should be a loving compassion for those who don't know Jesus. Yes, we should be angry over the sin that gets produced. But there should be an understanding that, boy, if it wasn't for Jesus saving me, I'd be just like them. And by the, God's grace and him saving me, now I can share that grace with somebody else. And so there's a humility, but there is a begging. There is a concern, a deep down concern for those that you are around. Sharing the gospel to someone who doesn't know Jesus is the greatest act you can do because you're taking the most precious knowledge in the universe and sharing it, which is what God desires. Entreating and begging. So the point is there should be an urgency. There should be a fervency in our care for the lost. God entreats. God begs. God earnestly calls. Through us, two sinners, be reconciled to God. 
I ask this question to you and I ask it to myself. When was the last time with great urgency you called someone to Jesus Christ? When was the last time you weeped over someone who was lost, a lost family member, a lost child, a lost friend, and just have your heart broken over their state before God? Spurgeon says this, I know no other preacher that had a heart for the lost like this man. He says this, Love your fellow men and cry about them if you cannot bring them to Christ. If you cannot save them, you can weep over them. If you cannot give them a drop of water in hell, you can give them your heart's tears while they are still in this body. There should be a weeping compassion for those around us who don't know Jesus. Spurgeon also says this, why should we beseech the lost? He's like saying this live in his sermon to those that are, that are listening to him. He says, why should we beseech you or beg you to come to Christ? He says this, is it not because you are rational creatures? You have the ability to think and you have emotions tied to that. He said, you're men, not machines. A machine might be compelled to perform functions without persuasion. But the Holy Spirit of God often acts upon the heart of man by sound arguments and affectionate entreaties of his servants whom he commissions. We beseech you because your hearts are so hard and you are uh, prone to defy God's power and resist his grace. And he's a Calvinist saying that. He says, how do we do it? He says, we beseech them like a mother pleads for her child. Or like a criminal who's going before the judge. He knows his sentence and he's just begging for relief that his sentence would be lowered. And he says this, fly to Jesus. And I say it to you today, if you don't know Christ, fly to Jesus. Call upon his name. Trust him. Trust his word. Trust his work, his goodness, and his grace. This is the way to reconciliation. Bow your knee and receive the Son. True love drives this reconciliation message. True love drives evangelism. Okay? I'll leave you with this last quote. Richard Baxter, 1600 Puritan. He says, I remember no one sin that my conscience doth so much accuse and judge me for as for doing so little for the saving of souls and for not dealing with the lost ones more fervently and earnestly for their conversion. The ministry has been given to us, the ministry of reconciliation. We are God's uh, appointed ambassadors to share the gospel, and it should be done with urgency. I want to leave you with a couple thoughts um, that you can take away with you to encourage you. Um, I don't want you to leave here beat up because you haven't maybe shared your faith in a while. So take some of this and this will help you. I practice this. I want to grow in practicing this. So let me leave you four uh, important things, okay? Number one, to be effective in your evangelism and carrying out the ministry of reconciliation, you've got to be on your knees. You have to be a prayer warrior. Prayer is the prerequisite to effective evangelism. Prayer is a prerequisite. Paul said in Colossians 4.3, he said, he said, pray for me that a door might be opened as he goes out and ministers. So number one, you should have a prayer list every morning. 
There should be a list of people that God has put on your heart and you pray for them daily. Okay? Two, as you're doing that, say, Lord, give me, pray that he would give you a greater passion for the gospel and for fulfilling the ministry of reconciliation. And three, as it relates to prayer, learn to pray on the spot. Okay? Learn to pray on the spot. What do I mean by that? You drive up to work. Well, many of you work from home. So if you are still working outside of your home and you drive up into the parking lot, just stop right there and say, Lord, help me to be a light for you today. Give me an opportunity to share my faith. Okay? When you go to the gym, some of you are now going back to the gym. I would like to tell you right now that it's almost a sin if you wear earplugs. Okay? Put those ear things in. Why? Because then you can shut out everybody. Now, my wife's down here going, yeah, but I want a good workout. I get that. I get that. That's important, but that doesn't come close to the importance of you being a light, possibly, to those that are lost. I have met so many people at the gym working out and playing basketball. I, I get to share my faith often there. It's almost like church to them. A lot of them are so dedicated. So you go there and you say, Lord, help me to be a light for you today as I'm pumping iron. Okay? Help me to see the lost the way you see them. Maybe this. This would be a good one. Your barber. Okay? That's for men. Now, Randy and I, this is getting difficult for Randy and I because, as, especially me, Randy, as my hair is falling out, my haircuts are getting shorter and shorter. So my window of opportunity to share the gospel is get down to 10 minutes now. But some of you women, you're in there for two, three hours. I don't know. What a great opportunity even right then and there to share your faith with a captive audience like that. Number two, use existing means of grace. Existing means of grace. It's Jonathan Edwards' language there. What do I mean by that? Sunday morning service. We're going through Romans right now. John is touching on the gospel, put this way and put this way and this way. What a great opportunity to bring someone who doesn't know Jesus. There are other ministries, student ministries. We're constantly preaching the gospel every Tuesday night. The Roaring Twenties or the college and, and career, which, by the way, we're meeting today right after in the ministry house. If you're college age or career age in your 20s, come and be with us today. Uh, Young Marrieds, which is starting up next week at our house. Okay, you can be a great ministry to reach married couples that don't have a church, don't know Jesus. Invite them to that. The men's ministry, the women's ministry, Awana. We have all these ministries that exist. Let's utilize them to reach the lost. Three. Now this one's going to be, this might turn some heads. Oh boy, where are you? Last but not least. Oh, it's in my Bible somewhere. I don't want to shake my Bible upside down. Nope, that's not it. All right, imagine this is a trap, okay? It has the gospel. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Honey, do you know what? Tracks, all right. Now, many of you in this room are going, well, I don't need a track. I know the gospel. Okay, well, let me tell you what tracks do for me. Number one, when you have them in your car or in your book bag or in your workout bag, you know what they do? They talk to you. The one on the dash says, Stead, why am I still here? okay. Why am I still here? And it's a great opportunity. Tracks remind you to be doing the work you should be doing, sharing the gospel. Two, the other reason why I use tracks is because when you don't have the time to really sit down with somebody and share, you can leave them behind. You go to a fast food place, you can give them, pay them, and give them a track and say, hey, by the way, this has a little bit of 
truth from the Bible that changed my life. Read it on your break. I have never had anybody say, no way, I'm not doing that. They always say, thank you. And then I pray that they would go read it. There are also good reinforcements after you share with somebody. You share the gospel with them and they say, hey, take this, read this tonight. It'll be exactly what I just shared with you. Okay? I have a friend, get this, I have a friend who came home from work and there was a track on his porch. Now God had been working, using different people, uh, touching his life and his soul, but he had not given his life to Christ yet. He picks up the track, he reads it, and he gets saved on the spot. And you know what's amazing? When, as I th- sit back and think about that, the person who left that track has no idea that my friend got saved via the leaving of the track. But he will know when he gets to glory. I want to be like that guy. I want to be used any way and every way I can. And last but not least, I'll leave you with this last point. Practice obeying the Spirit of God in you when he pricks your heart to speak. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. What is that? When you're sitting with somebody and you're in a conversation, all of a sudden in your heart you're pricked to say something. What needs to happen? What is that? It's not your flesh. Your flesh would do whatever it could to suppress that, right? You do whatever you can to weasel out of having to share the gospel. You don't want to offend somebody. You don't want them to turn against you, whatever. And so you suppress it. Is it the devil? No, he's not divided. He wants you to keep your mouth shut. I am here to tell you, I believe if you're a Christian and you're pricking your heart to talk, it is the Holy Spirit saying, instead, open your mouth. Open your mouth. And so I have fought and prayed, saying, Lord, help me to be obedient when you prick my heart to share, to faithfully do it. And I want to encourage you guys to do that as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you have reconciled us to yourself through the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, there are many in this building here that love you, that have been made into new creatures, and they want to grow in their sharing of their faith. They want to do it more effectively. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that nobody leave here beat up, but they would leave encouraged and desiring to want to share their faith. I pray that Tri-City Bible, my church, our church, would be known for caring for the lost and would be evangelistic. Lord, and lastly, if there's somebody here that does not know Jesus Christ, draw them to yourself. Draw them now. May they be reconciled to you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and you in your spirit are desiring to be made right with God, then I would encourage you to do this, to repent. Say, Lord, I've sinned against you. I am a sinner, but I believe your son died for me. And you cry out to God and you say, God, forgive me and save me. And he will do that. Lord, I pray that you would do that even now in the heart of some that don't know you. Thank you now for this opportunity uh, to be together today. And we pray that you would be honored in our last uh, song. And as we go into this world, may we be lights for you. In Jesus' name, amen.